Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Davro. Kev, what's good, my guy? How was uh, how was Mother's Mother's Day for you? Mother's Day was good, man. Happy Mother's Day to all those uh, moms out there. Beautiful day. Uh, I got to hang out with my mom and my grandma. She's still here from New York. So Max and I took them out to dinner yesterday. Um, had a good time. Walked around Coconut Point. Just got to really relax and just kind of get outside. Today, my dad cooked for them. So just spent the day with them and really relaxed. Took some pictures. Got to play with Sabo. Sabo had a near-death experience, but we're, we're fine. We're good on this side. How was Mother's Day with your mom? It was good. You know, got to spend a little bit of time uh, with her and the family after work. Uh, fortunately, I got out of work relatively early. So at least I was able to spend some good quality time with them and as always, every year, just happy Mother's Day, Mom. So I figure I got to say it. Kev, Kev said it, so I got to say it too. So, Got to, bro. Are you kidding me? They, we wouldn't be here without them and all the moms out there doing incredible jobs. I mean, seriously, hats off to you guys raising the future of this country, the future of the world. It's no easy feat. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I know what that's like. So again, big kudos. Happy Mother's Day to everybody, especially my mom and my grandmas. Love you guys. And uh, let's get this episode started, man. We have... A whole lot to talk about today, so if you don't mind, I'm going to take the agenda today. Floor is yours, bro. Go ahead. All right. So in the NBA, it's going to be all NBA, actually, now that I think about it. We have a whole lot to talk about. The Eastern Conference semifinals have been wrapped up. The Boston Celtics absolutely dog walk the Philadelphia 76ers in Game 7 and advance to the NBA Eastern Conference Finals for the second consecutive year behind Jason Tatum's 51-point barrage against the Sixers. He broke Steph Curry's record as of, was it a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, of the most points scored in a Game 7, albeit by one point, but still an incredible performance. Nonetheless, we'll dive into that and what it meant for the Celtics as a whole and the momentum that's going to catapult them into the next series. Then we will talk about Joel Embiid's comments post-game where he said, basically along the lines to kind of sum it up, you know, James and I, you know, we need a little bit more help. Everybody's got to perform kind of like a cop-out to an extent. You know, I'll give my thoughts. Kyle will give his thoughts on what that comment kind of meant to the both of us. Uh, and and unfortunately, we got to give this attention because it's going to be probably one of the biggest stories this week, especially tomorrow morning as it was this morning. Ja Morant was seen on Instagram Live holding another firearm, and he has been suspended indefinitely as of right now from team activities from the Memphis Grizzlies. And rumor has it from Woj, from Shams, that there is going to be a severe suspension to start the season next year. We don't know how long that's going to be. We don't know how it's going to affect his endorsements, his relationship with his teammates. But only time would tell. 
Kyle and I will definitely give our thoughts on where we think that's going to go. Um, and then, of course, we are definitely going to dive into the previews of the Eastern and Western Conference Finals. Oh, excuse me. Actually, I skipped one. We're going to talk about Monty Williams and him being released from the Suns and how it's kind of weird how one of the most winningest coaches in Phoenix history within the last four seasons with a finals appearance, multiple playoff berths, gets let go when his players fall short. There have been a lot of coaching changes, um, coach firings throughout the NBA this season as the chips have fallen throughout the playoffs. And Kyle and I have some thoughts on that. So we'll kind of talk about that a little bit. Then, see what I mean? I made a mistake. Then we'll talk about the Eastern and Western Conference Finals and the previews to what we believe each matchup is going to provide. The Celtics will obviously be facing the eighth-seeded Miami Heat, and the Los Angeles Lakers as the seventh seed will be facing the number one overall-seeded Denver Nuggets. So, Kyle, jam-packed agenda today. Let's get this started. This Game 7 was wild for the Celtics. Not for the Sixers, bro. No, 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 no. (laughs) It's a game that they'll probably want to forget sooner rather than later just because Kevin's a beatdown. There's no other way to put it. Beatdown in the third quarter is more like it. Kidding me? Thirty-three to ten in one corner. Jesus. Golden uh, State esque, but you know Philly didn't help themselves. So Kyle, I gotta kick this one your way, man. Obviously, we know Jason Tatum dropped fifty-one. We all know that Joel Embiid won the MVP. But there's just a little bit more behind this game in and of itself, rather than just the score. So I want to get your overall thoughts on the end result and kind of how this game transpired from a tight neck game from the first half to Philly falling apart in the third. What are your thoughts, bro? Well, Boston just dominated Philly in the second half of this game seven because going into halftime, Boston was only up three points. And if you look at it from this perspective, if you're looking at it from Philly side of things, only being down three points on the road in a game seven, I think that's a pretty advantageous situation for them. I mean, they were up going into the second quarter. Boston had a good run in the second quarter. It was just kind of a back-and-forth nature uh, in that first half, which is totally expected within a Game 7 of this magnitude. And then it's as if Philly forgot how to play basketball in the second half of this Game 7. Okay, if I remember correctly, I think the Sixers only scored like 35 to like 38 points in the second half. It was just a complete embarrassment from an offensive perspective with Philly. There was a point in time where the 76ers didn't score one point for six and a half minutes in the third quarter. And in that time frame, you had Jason Tatum on the Celtics just annihilate Philly defensively. It was, he's getting a shot over here, three-pointer. Another shot over here. It's another three-pointer. He was just knocking down shots left and right. And Philly had no answer for Jason Tatum. I think at the end of the third quarter, he was already over 40 points. And that was despite the fact that he already had 25 points going into halftime. So everybody remembered how bad of a game Jason Tatum had in that game six, where he only had three points going into the fourth quarter of that game, did really well in the fourth quarter of that game, and just took the momentum from that fourth quarter in game six and just took it to a whole new level in game seven. Jason Tatum was almost responsible for half of the team's points. I think it was somewhere around, he contributed about 40% of Boston's overall points in this game seven against Philly. And when it came to the 76ers, it just, it didn't matter. Even if they were defending Jason properly, 
the Celtics would pass the ball around to find somebody who was open for a look and they would knock down a shot. So from a Philly perspective, this was just a team failure. Philly just didn't show up, whether it was Joel Embiid, whether it was James Harden, whether it was Tyrese Maxey, whether it was Tobias Harris. Nobody from Philly showed up in this game, and it's representative It's representative of the fact that they only scored 88 points as a team when Boston was just running and gunning pretty much that entire second half. So as far as I see it, this was just a complete team win for Boston. What Boston did offensively was great, but I think the bigger side of things, the bigger accomplishment in this game was the fact that Boston's defense was just stifling especially in that second half. You know, when you get a team that's able to play great defense and hold the opposing team to under 100 points in today's game, you take that every day that you can get it or every game that you can get it. Because it's very rare that you see offensive performances that are this anemic in the modern-day NBA. And the fact that Boston was able to stifle Philly this significantly, really a tip to the cap to... Boston in their defensive assignments and just the intensity that they brought as a unit. And, you know, obviously when it comes to Jason dropping 51 points, it's the most points scored in a playoff game seven in NBA history. It just, he just broke Steph's record, which Steph had just set like a week and a half ago in that game seven matchup against the Sacramento Kings. And Jason was only three points away from tying the Celtics overall playoff scoring record Set by John Havlicek, I think he scored 54 points uh, back when he was playing. So, you know, pretty much it was Jason Tatum's day. It just he he took not only the team by storm, he took social media, he took all of Boston by storm, just with that performance. And Philly had no answer for it. Here's a part of me that kind of feels bad for Doc. You know, I understand that Doc's had uh, some pretty bad luck when it comes to these game seven uh, in the playoff format. And unfortunately, he has to suffer probably one of the more embarrassing losses that he's had in his coaching career. And honestly, I don't know if I could really blame him whatsoever in this game. Philly was in this in the first half, and Philly got on a massive cold streak. They went ice cold in that third quarter. And you know, once Boston got up 20-plus points, it was pretty much a wrap at that point. So, you know, with the result being what it was, with Boston winning by pretty much 20, 25 points. They're moving on to the Eastern Conference Finals where they'll face the Heat. I believe that series starts on Wednesday, if I remember correctly. Yep. Uh, it should be a very interesting matchup between uh, the Celtics and the Heat. Uh, this will be the second time that these two teams have played in the Eastern Conference Finals in the last three years. So the last time that they played was uh, in the 2020 season where uh, the playoffs were played in the bubble at Disney. So it'll be very interesting to see these two teams go back at it. But really, just to wrap this up, I I don't think you could have gotten a better performance from Boston in this Game 7. And when it came to Philly, this is a nightmare scenario. And this could be something that really kind of changes the entire culture within Philly this offseason. Because I imagine there's going to be some pretty big changes that are coming to Philly because of this Game 7 disaster that took place in Boston for them. But overall, just a great performance from Boston. They definitely deserve the win as far as I see it. I couldn't agree more. The only reason I'm on my phone is because I think I just saw, I think if I remember correctly, last year, the Heat faced off against the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals because 
the Celtics went to the finals, obviously, eventually losing to the Golden State Warriors. But I just had a breakdown over the last five or six years. And of course, you, you go f- too far on Twitter and you can't find the damn tweet you just saw or like. So I, I'm hoping that I'm right because, again, I'm, I'm almost positive that they faced off against one another last I year. I could look it up. You yeah. know, if, they, if they played three times in the last you know, three or four, four years, years or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I'll, Again, I'll I think up. so. Nevertheless, game seven, it started off good. I mean, like Kyle said, three-point game, you know, like obviously like Joel struggling from the field as a whole. Obviously Tyrese Maxey struggling. Everybody's kind of struggling, but it's still close. Jason's got 25 at half. Jalen's struggling, but you're thinking, okay, this is still within a decent margin. You know, obviously, like again, like Kyle kind of said, without reiterating everything, you're on the road, game seven, this is the pressure. This is this is where superstars are made. And instead of rising to the occasion, Philly absolutely crumbled. And it's not because of just Jason Tatum. You got to look at shot selection. You got to look at careless turnovers. You have to look at bad fouls. I mean, like overall, Philly's body language, their presence, their overall kind of like aura, just it was just sucked out of them, man. Like, their soul just left once Jason hit, like, two or three threes in a row. I was texting Kyle. This performance, crucify me if you will, was very Kobe-esque because he didn't stop shooting. He didn't stop taking shots. He didn't stop being aggressive. He put his foot on their throat and stomped it out and made sure that they didn't get back up. Jason was making shot after shot, complicated three, fading away, attacking the basket, finishing at the rim, you name it. It mattered not. Philly wasn't able to stop them. They weren't able to capitalize on their offensive end, and Boston played great defense. We already talked about this. 33-10 to 10 in the third quarter alone in favor of Boston. You don't score for six and a half minutes. That is more than half of the quarter. And you're going to sit here and you're going to tell me that, that that's all you could do? James Harden goes 3 of 11. Joel Embiid goes 5 of 18. Maxi goes 5 of 12. You guys can't muster up something. As a team, you put out 37% from the field, 21 from 3 in a Game 7. I said to Kyle at the end of Game 6, I said Philly threw away their chances to win. They should have sealed this in Philly because if it goes back to Boston, it's over. And look what happened. Jason Tatum caught fire. Scores 51, and I mean, like, there, there was just no stopping him at any capacity. It didn't matter if it was P.J. Tucker, Tobias Harris, a double team. I mean, Jason just had the game of his life, and it was incredible to watch. From start to finish, the man just did what he needed to do, willed his team to win, and now they advance to their second consecutive Eastern Conference Finals. But from a Philly standpoint, I'm looking at this and saying, what happened to the James Harden that scored 42 and 45? What happened to Joel Embiid, the MVP? What happened to Tyrese Maxey emerging as the third superstar? superstar? You know it's a problem when P.J. Tucker outscores James Harden. P.J. Tucker had 11 points. James had nine. Tell me what the hell the problem is there. Between Joel and James Harden, they had nine turnovers. They were not able to get it going. I tell everybody every single year, James Harden's in the playoffs. He will never win a ring. Rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. He said James Harden style. We'll never win a game. Now, I know that Kobe was referring to the Houston days when James would take, you know, like eight to 10 threes a game, averaging 36 points a game. We understand that. But how James plays the game and just putting up ridiculous shots, contested shots, body language, kind of giving up, lack of defense, lack of effort when things don't go his way. 
you can just see that he's kind of like a little kid when he gets scolded. He's just like, whatever. Like, no, man, you're in the damn Eastern Conference semifinals. Your team needs to get to the conference finals. We've trusted the process with Joel Embiid since he got in the league, and you guys can't make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. You guys can't make it to that next step. It's the same thing. Ben Simmons, James Harden, uh, Markel Fultz, New Orleans Noel, whoever the hell it's been, you haven't been able to do it. I don't want to hear excuses from Joel at the podium, and that's going to segue us into that next topic. I have no remorse for you to, to, to make comments. I don't have remorse for you to quote Giannis Antetokounmpo. At least Giannis goes out even though it wasn't five and he was injured for two and a half of those games and missed 13 free throws, you can't say he didn't leave it on the floor. He had 38 and 20. He didn't stop attacking. He didn't fold. He may have had some turnovers. He may have had some bad shot selection. He may not have even been efficient. He didn't stop. James Harden didn't want to score. James Harden didn't want to take no shots. I think in the last three fourth quarter Philly losses, James Harden has zero points. You gonna tell me you can't put up no points? Joel Embiid, oh, it's a five, it's a team sports five on five. James and I need help, but it's funny because when you need, uh, when you're at the podium and you scored fifty points, when you win the MVP, when you score forty five points, when Philly blows out a team, oh, it's a team sport. Uh, you know the team did great. The team played great defense. You know, like I couldn't have done this without my teammates. You didn't play good either, bro. So maybe your teammates need some help because you're supposed to be a leader. Fifteen points. That's it. I'm just saying, it goes both ways in sports. You can't be politically correct, <clears throat> excuse me, politically correct in front of the media and being like, oh, my teammates, I couldn't, you know, this win is a team win. This is incredible. You know you were the reason they won. You know you scored 50 and had 15, 20 rebounds and like three block shots, whatever the stat line was. But when you lose, you're quick to throw everybody under and be like, we need help. That's a low blow. That's not a good look for Philly. Doc Rivers is already on the hot seat. There were plenty of rumors of his job being on the line based off the result of this game. I don't even know what's going to happen to him. But you're going to sit here and, and just say we need help? Fascinating because I'm pretty sure they're looking at you and saying the same thing because the stat line looks almost even when it comes to the starters. PJ goes for 11, Tobias 19. You had 15 in, in, in uh, reference to Joel. Tyrese Maxey had 17. You got to look at your boy, James Harden. You can't say me and James need help when your boy's putting up nine and is a negative 30 in the plus minus scale. Look in the mirror before you go and start blaming other people. That is a weak cop out by Joel Embiid. But Boston advances. And uh, I'm looking forward to Jason Tatum versus Jimmy Butler. So you and I look at these comments a little bit differently. Because I actually watched his answer at the podium. Um, and I wanted to get the context of, of what he actually said. Because I remember uh, when I was, I think I was either at work or this may have been later in the day when, when you sent me that uh, Twitter message about what he said post game about how essentially, you know, it can't just be, me and James, and this was obviously Joel talking. Yeah. I think when it comes to this game seven, I, I think even Joel looked at this game. This game was just a complete disaster. Like everybody failed. Like there's nobody is above criticism in this game. Like everybody deserves to get criticized because Joel didn't show up. James didn't show up. Tyrese Maxey didn't show up. Uh, Tobias Harris didn't show up. And, and Doc is just kind of sitting there like, what do you want me to do? I think the way that Joel was talking about that specific point that you're referencing to was that I think Joel was coming at it from a perspective of 
we're very top heavy, but we need to create more opportunities for the other three guys to be able to capitalize and, and, and make plays as a team. Like I could totally understand. I could totally understand where you're looking at it as Joel is copping out. He's basically throwing the rest of his teammates, uh, except for James under the bus. I didn't really read those comments in that manner. I think it was more of, he was explaining that as a team, it can't just be me and James because everybody expects us to do that. Like there's five guys out there on the court that could all play and play really solid basketball. It's, it's like, we need to open up more opportunities for guys to be able to maximize off of those opportunities. That's the way that I was reading what he was saying in that post game. Yeah, but those conference. five guys had a, a multitude of great shot attempts. Again, sure. Seven of 13, five of 18, five of 12, yeah. Three of eleven, like you, every you, single starter had double digit attempts. Like they are trying, there are opportunities. You're getting good looks, but there are times in situations like this when you're the MVP. Sure, right? You got to be like, give me the, give me the ball, and I got to do my thing. But sure. instead, you're passing out. You're trying to get people involved. You're getting double team. You're folding. You're turning the ball over. You're putting up bad shots. You're missing layup. You got to sure. hold yourself accountable. You can't say we need help. Your running mate that you defended and said, James and I need help. Mm -hmm. He was the worst player on the floor today. He had nine points. Yeah, he, uh, James was completely out of rhythm that entire game. I'm with you 100%. He so had, it's like, bro, you got to say we have to do better as a team, not we need help in reference to you and one other person. It's a bad look. That's a bad teammate. You don't say that, especially after an embarrassing loss. Because when y'all win... It's a team effort, right? Even though you score 40 or James scored 40, we did good. When you guys combined for 70-something points, the team did good. When in reality, you two did good. Keep the well, same energy. Well, I mean, if you look at that Game 7 in particular, the, the guy that was off to a really hot start for Philly, it wasn't James. It wasn't Joel. It was P.J. Tucker. He P.J. Tucker, Tucker got, what, like 11 points in the first quarter? Yep. He was knocking down some three-pointers. And, you know, to me, I, look, when it comes to this game in particular, look, you have to give credit to what Boston was doing defensively. They were Agreed. switching They were switching assignments. They were not giving Joel the same look where Joel could take advantage of it. And they were putting Joel in a situation where, look, if the play is not there to be made, just because Boston's got it locked down defensively, you're going to have to pass out. And sometimes that's the smarter play to make. It's just... It's unfortunate for Philly when they got their open looks, especially in that third quarter. Kev, they were ice cold. Like and Siberian no shooting like, competition with them. Kev, it was like Siberian type cold for them just because they scored 10 points in the third quarter. So, you know, to me, when I look at this situation with Joel, I'm not judging him so harshly over this because my collective sense when it comes to this loss from Philly is that everybody failed. And I, to me, I don't think there's really somebody who deserves the most amount of blame here. I, I think that would be unfair in this situation because even though the James had a bad game, Joel didn't have a good game. Tyrese Maxey didn't have a good game. Doc is probably blaming himself. He's probably kicking himself over this performance because he's probably thinking that he didn't put his guys in a position for them to succeed. So to me, whatever sort of things that are said post-game from a Philly perspective... I think it's pretty much summarized by the fact that they got their asses whooped. Yeah. And I think that they were, I know Doc was really giving Jason Tatum 
a bunch of credit and a lot of respect for that game seven performance. And, you know, at, at some point you really just have to, you have to give it up to Boston. Boston showed up, they played to the best of their abilities and, and Philly just fell short. So I totally understand where you're coming from with Joel's comments. I just didn't take them as harshly because I think he was talking about, we have to make sure that, you know, look, look, there's five guys out on the court. It's like, we have to make sure that these guys are getting opportunities to be able to cash in on those looks. It's just didn't happen. Just didn't happen. So, and, and, and look, I also you know, want to put a, a funny stat out there. I think if I read it correctly, Joel Embiid had a 9.5 point drop off from the regular season to the postseason, which mm-hmm. is like highest in NBA history from an MVP in the playoffs. That is horrible is it, from a statistic. I, yeah, I, I will say though, if you had to guess, do you think that he was 100% in the series with that knee sprain? I understand. No. Like, I, I'm not saying, like, you know, I'm not saying it as an excuse, but it's like, you know, you're probably looking at Joel at 85. Maybe less. Maybe. I'd probably say less, to be honest. Because, uh, dude, knee sprains are a bitch. Yeah, and you saw so, him wrapped up underneath his uh, his pro shorts or compression pants or whatever the hell they were. Um, super big brace. No joke. So, you know, to me, you know, I appreciate the fact that he was still going out there and trying to make plays for his team. Now, obviously when you're limited in capacity, you're not going to get that explosive Joel that you're getting from the no. regular season. But I appreciate the fact that he didn't use like that knee sprain as an excuse in the reason why they lost the series. He went out there and competed. Yeah. It's just unfortunate that, uh, that that knee sprain, even though they probably won't say it, definitely did play a factor just I with agree. his overall effectiveness. And But Kev, just James. James, dude, just... It's what he does. Guarantee he was on a it's plane a, to a strip club in had, Vegas or Houston two, right now. He had two great he had two great games in that series. It was what game one and game four. It's just the every, every other game just didn't show up. It, it 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 is what it is with James Harden. I'm not surprised. I tell everybody all the time. He may be one of the greatest scorers we've ever seen. He may be one of the best shooting guards that I've ever played the game from an offensive standpoint. We don't have any questions or debacles there. But when it comes to the playoffs. You know what you're going to get from him. Small, sample-sized spurts. Turns the ball over like no one else. Doesn't play defense as it is. And consistently with his body language and decision-making has led, I guess, two franchises now astray. I mean, he didn't do good in the NBA Finals when he was uh, in Oklahoma City Thunder either. So that this goes back even farther because he played so poorly in that series against the Heat. So this has been a thing... For about a decade now, every time he's made the playoffs, he may have had a few series here and there where he played efficient, but I don't want to hear it. James Harden is one of the biggest choke artists in the playoffs that I've ever seen in my lifetime. He just cannot get it going consistently. 45 and 42 points, those are great games. Those are good games. Great games. But, but when the yeah, world, yeah. when your team needs you, when the world needs you, when the city that you're representing needs you, your franchise needs you the most, nine points. So... I'm going to let that rock right there. We're going to slide into our next topic. Kyle, what we got, bro? Uh, we're going to talk about your buddy. We're going to talk about your buddy, John Clown. Morant. Clown. Uh, Kev, honestly, this this kind of feels like deja vu all over again when it comes to John Morant because we just talked about Ja a couple months back when he was caught in a strip club brandishing a gun on IG Live. And, uh, well, I, I guess we've come full circle again. Um, if you guys... Hadn't heard, 
John Morant was on somebody else's Instagram live. I don't believe one it of his was boys. I, yeah, it wasn't one of his. Uh, he was sitting. Was he in the passenger seat? No, was Ja he, was driving. I, yeah, I just, I didn't like, I couldn't tell based off of um, the angle of the camera because sometimes like when you're on that that front facing camera, it kind of flips everything. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, uh, John Morant was caught on Instagram Live once again, brandishing a gun, this time while driving a vehicle. And there's already been some significant updates when it comes to John Morant's status. Currently within this offseason, he's been currently suspended uh, by the Grizzlies indefinitely. So he's barred from any of the team activities for the foreseeable future. Kevin mentioned it earlier in the lead up that there's probably going to be a significant suspension headed for John Morant. The timetable for the the suspension, we don't know yet. I imagine it's going to cover a decent amount of games. Uh, Kevin and I will have plenty to opine on this because uh, uh, Kevin and I have some pretty interesting thoughts when it comes to this situation at hand. But, Kev, let's just get this thing rolling. i got to kick this one to you. What do you think about John Morant on Instagram Live once again? Wow, I think I... I think I said it wrong. Um, what do you think about John Morant going on Instagram Live once again and essentially being caught branching a gun when he was just caught on Instagram Live two months ago, essentially doing the same thing? I, it screams ungrateful to me. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know what John Morant's thinking. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I'm in his inner circle, in his family, know him personally. None of those. It's all based on appearance. It is all based on what we've seen, what he's put in front of us. And the sample size we have is you've done this twice now in less than two months, two months full time, depending on the timeline you're looking at between all the offseason drama, the thing with the kid and the basketball and pointing the gun at him with your teammates. Apparently they saw or excuse me, uh, a security guard at the arena uh, saw a laser coming from the car. It really is starting to look like this is the life you want to live. Right. So this is my opinion. Throw stone me if you must. You want to live that life so bad? Go live that life. I think John Moran should be banned from the NBA. I've said it, and I don't care. I think that somebody like this at this age that clearly does not respect authority, rules, and just overall common sense, I think you need to be. Everything needs to be taken from you. It's a business. Yes, I know that the Grizzlies invested multiple millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in him. Yes, I understand he's 24, 23, his age. Yes, I understand that these are his friends and how he's acted his whole life. I don't care. I don't care. In sports, we have seen suspensions for the dumbest things gambling, smoking pot, freaking uh, showing up late to practice. We've seen people attitude or, or touching referees, you get suspended. Technical fouls, you get suspended a game for having multiple or whatever, right? All these suspensions are handed out. Technical fouls, handed out left and right. Fines, handed out left and right. John Morant got eight games, really only two, for the first time. That was in a mass group of people. That was in a nightclub. That was probably why he was intoxicated. Doesn't get any severe punishment. Gets a fine, tiny suspension, goes to rehab, a mental institution, whatever it is to better himself. Comes back, I apologize, I need to be better. Da, da, da. I knew it was a lie. We all knew it was a lie. That was his PR team, wrote him a good script. Jalen Rose sat in front of him, gave him a heart-to-heart because Jalen had admitted that he had been in similar instances at his age and put himself in some bad situations and also acknowledged today that if social media was around back then, he probably would be in Jaws' similar shoes, if not worse. But I don't want to hear it. 
I don't want to hear he's young. I don't want to hear he's inexperienced. I don't want to hear he doesn't know any better. I don't want to hear anything. It's a firearm, and you clearly don't respect anything that has been given to you. You don't admire or, or, or respect you, the, the blessings you've been handed to you. Do you understand that is generational wealth? To play a game? To dribble a basketball, you are getting paid thousands of dollars a minute. A minute! And you just want to throw it away because you want to live a thug life? You want to be cool? You want to be cute? You damn near almost blew your head off because, again, if you freeze the frame, the gun is basically pointed at your head. You're in a motor vehicle. You hit a road bump. You fucking steer off. You're focused on the road. You t what if you kill yourself by... I'm just saying. The possibilities are endless. This isn't a toy gun. This isn't a taser. This isn't a knife. This is a gun. Probably a loaded one. And you are throwing your future away to look cool. Whether you're about that life or not, whether you're in a crew, a gang, a situation, whatever it may be, clearly you don't care about the NBA. Clearly you don't want to live this lifestyle that thousands, if not millions of people want to live. If I had millions of dollars, I'm not doing anything stupid to jeopardize that. I, I, bro, I'd, I'd stay home. I wouldn't go out. Maybe every now and again, bro, that, but that's just me. Yeah, I'm going to have fun and spend a little money, maybe go on some vacations, maybe go to the nightclub every once in a while, throw money. Bro, we're, we're in our 20s. I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm going to be an angel, but I'm not going to do the shit that you're doing. I don't want to hear any excuses from him. This isn't the first time. Hell, this isn't even the second time. You have been reprimanded a multitude of times throughout this whole season. In one year, you have basically tried to say, I don't want to play in the NBA anymore. That's the message I'm getting, along with thousands of people in this world, millions of people in this world, that share the same sentiments that I do. Whether or not you're suspended half of the year, a full year, John Morant needs to, he needs to lose something. Sponsorships, Nike cut ties with Kyrie for a tweet. Two times with a gun now. What's Nike going to do? Probably nothing. What's Powerade going to do? Probably nothing. What's the Grizzlies going to do? <laughs> Probably nothing, or should I say not enough. It is ridiculous that these athletes are held on such a pedestal that they get to do whatever they want. Because Kyle and I had already mentioned when he did this last time, if this was me or him and our employers found this, it'd be over. It'd be over. Clearly, Ja Morant does not appreciate any of the blessings he's been bestowed in his life for his hard work and his efforts to get to that level of professionalism in a professional sport. And you want to act like a thug. Go live the thug life, Papa. That 200 some odd million could be given to somebody else that's going to be worth it. Somebody in the G League, in Europe, in college, maybe even in high school. Because clearly you don't want it. You want to have your cake and eat it too. I'm going to be a multimillionaire. I'm going to flaunt my money in the strip club. I'm going to party. I'm going to have a gun. I'm going to go out with my boys, act like a thug. You can't do both. You got to pick. I'm going to be an NBA player and do it the right way, or at least do it in a private way. Or I'm going to just act like an asshole. Those are my thoughts. Again, crucify me if you must. You fumble in the bag, and you're about to lose everything you've worked so hard for. I don't want to hear it. John Morant needs some kind of discipline to where he is going to change his ways or he should be take, or everything should be taken away from him. That's it. I mean, when it comes to me, John Morant should at least be suspended indefinitely. I'm talking about bare minimum. He has to miss at least the first half of next season because of this. Because when we look back to the first situation, 
Kev, we could both agree that the NBA completely did, they did not punish John Morant as they should have in that first case. The fact that he was really only suspended for a couple games was ridiculous. And it had a lot to do with the fact that it was at the end of the regular season. And had they given some sort of lengthy suspension against him, it would have had a huge ramification against the Grizzlies because he would have missed time in the playoffs. Like I said, bare minimum, based off of this situation with him branching another gun on Instagram Live, at least half of next season to start off the year. In my personal opinion, he should be suspended for the entire year next year. And I know that seems relatively harsh just based off of how it comes off, but knowing that Ja has already done this multiple times and this seems to be a reoccurring pattern, I think if the NBA doesn't go to the length of suspending him for the year, I think it's relatively too soft when it comes to the punishment. And I think it's really as simple as this. I think the NBA is afraid of getting blowback from social media or just people in general if they come off too harsh with a punishment for John Morant. Well, let's take this into account, for example. You're talking about the NBA. You're talking about the image that they present to the world. You have a situation where John Morant has brandished guns on Instagram Live. Not once, but twice. First time, they pretty much let him go with a slap of the wrist. Really wasn't anything. But now you have it happen in the second time after John Morant and his PR team essentially ran cover on how this situation transpired the first time around and basically said that he'll learn from his mistakes. Well, that, like Kev said, that was just a complete and utter lie as far as I see it. So I think when it comes to the NBA, they have to harshly hand down a suspension here. And I think that it's deserved because like I said, when it comes to an image that the NBA is trying to hold, you have a guy that's running around with guns doing it on an Instagram live. And if you're only going to suspend him for, let's say 15, 20 games, that's going to leave an impression on, on some people where basically you're just letting players essentially kind of commit crimes without really any sort of repercussions, which is, Kind of crazy. So when it comes to Ja, overall, I'm just, I'm disappointed. Like, there's really no other way to put it. I mean, I could, you know, I could beat on my chest and say that I'm just pissed that, that Ja did these things. It's like, no, it's like, Ja's making, what, like 40 some million dollars a year when he got his contract extension. Like, this guy is living the life that a lot of us, only dream of based on the skill set that he possesses and essentially he's pissing it away and the fact that he doesn't have the awareness to be able to see that the company that he keeps the company that he associates with is putting him in a situation where it's actually more increasing to happen that he could lose millions upon millions of dollars because of this foolish behavior and, I mean, for me, it's hard to have sympathy for somebody that they're in their mid-20s. Like, you'd think they would kind of have it figured out by now that maybe brandishing guns on Instagram Live probably isn't the smartest thing to do. But nonetheless, John Morant f- finds himself in the situation again. And where are we supposed to go from here? It To me, 
it's unfortunate that, that Ja just can't see where this is going. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he probably thinks that he could get away with it on a sl- with a slap of the wrist and not really face any sort of significant repercussions from this. I think this may be one of those times where I think I think reality is going to finally catch up to him. Now, depending on what the NBA does, we will see. I'm not really inclined to believe that they're going to properly punish him because of this, but he will get some sort of suspension from the NBA. That is clear. It's just we don't know what it's going to be uh, when it's handed down from the NBA. But when it comes to Ja, it's just a very disappointing situation just because the guy literally has the world in his hands and he doesn't have the awareness to know that what he's doing is essentially destroying that. And people could use youth as an excuse. Kev, we were in our 20s and we knew that behavior like this wasn't going to lead to a positive outcome. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jaws, you know, making thirty, forty million million a year and probably thinks that he can get away with it with really little to no punishment in reality. But we'll see what happens. I, I, I think for me, I think a year suspension should do. Do I have faith that the NBA will actually do that? Not really. They have a pretty soft uh, history when it comes to heading down proper punishments uh, when this, when these types of situations arise. So we'll see how things goes. We'll see how things go. But this whole jaw situation is just... It's unfortunate that uh, he doesn't have the awareness that he's doing more harm to himself than good. And... I think reality is gonna gonna set in fairly quick, but to what extent? I guess we'll find out. Gilbert Arenas got a full year suspension when he brought the handgun to the locker room. Right, done. Immediate. Davis started didn't play. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear it. I don't want the disappointment. That's not the word I'm looking for. I'm looking at asshat, clown, wannabe. Period. Uh, disappointment is when. Your toddler forgets to close the seat when he goes to pee. Disappointment is not picking up your toys when you're six years old after your mom tells you to. Disappointment is when your son fails a test or your daughter comes home with a failing grade. That's disappointment. This is just stupidity. You don't need to be a multimillionaire to know that this isn't the right behavior. You don't need to be a scientist to understand that this isn't this isn't the, the, the way you're supposed to act when you're at a position that you are in society as a multi-million dollar athlete, the face of a franchise, the face or potential future face of Nike, Powerade, and a list of other endorsements. If Gilbert got a year for the handgun in the locker room, Jaws got to get multiple. Dude, the first instance was in a nightclub with countless innocent people. That was, that, heaven forbid you pop off. Then the next one, you endanger yourself because you clearly don't know a gun hurts and you got that shit in your face in a motor vehicle. You hurt yourself. You hurt people in the car. You accidentally pop off and shoot somebody that's driving by. Your life is over. Their life could end. Gilbert had the gun. He didn't deny it. Jaws waving it around. I think this is a direct jab at Adam Silver. Bro, you got to do something. The league is just going to run you over and step all over you. 
if you don't make a definitive example out of John Morant right now, you tried to be lenient, you tried to give him a pass, and he learned his he learned shit. What 23-year-old learns by being punished with minimal punishment? Nobody. Kids don't even learn that. You got you, you to throw the book at him right now. A year suspension, to me, is the bare, bare, bare minimum. Again, I'd rather have him banned or just suspended indefinitely, period. They're not going to ban him. What? They're not going to ban but, him. I understand that. I understand that that's just that's my personal preference. But if you just suspend him, right, you got to suspend him without pay because Gilbert was suspended without pay for the same thing, right? It's only, it's only fair. Why am I going to pay you to sit home when you're acting like a thug? You're not going to act like a thug if you ain't got no money. Someone's got to cut him from an endorsement. Or the NBA's got to do regular periodic check-ins. Where you've been the last few weeks, turn your social media off. Somebody's got to follow him. He needs a handler, basically. That's what you need, essentially. You need a ginormous babysitter. He needs more than that. So I'm going to leave it there. And we're going to move on to the next topic because I could do this all day. Again, crucify me if you will. I'm entitled to my own opinion. John Moran is an incredible and talented and massively fun-to-watch player on the basketball court. But he's also a human being, a father, and a son. And if this was a different narrative of him getting hurt because of these antics, we'd be sitting here saying, oh, my goodness, John Moran. No. You want to act like a thug, you got to be ready for the, for the repercussions. So that's it. Next on the list, we got another NBA head coach, former two-time coach of the year, get released from the Phoenix Suns and Monty Williams. For those of you that are unaware, in his last four seasons as head coach, Monty Williams has gone 34 and 39 in 2020. That was the bubble where Phoenix ended up closing that and winning it out. They, they, they won every single game in the bubble and still failed to make the playoffs. Going to the next season, 51 and 21, 64 and 18. 47 and 37. He's a winning coach. He gets it done. He has a finals appearance. He has multiple playoff appearances. And he gets fired? I mean, Kyle, I got to get your thoughts just because, again, Monty Williams is, is a very well respected and loved head coach by multiple players, former teammates. What do you think about Phoenix Fire? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Bring him. Oh, this is a mistake. Uh, There's no other way to put it. I think Phoenix was a little bit too premature in coming up with this decision to to fire Monty Williams uh, as their head coach. Granted, I'm fully aware of the fact that game six in Phoenix was essentially a beatdown. The Nuggets just rolled in and essentially gave Phoenix what Phoenix had just suffered the year before when they lost that game seven in the Western Conference semifinals. To the Mavericks. Kept the Mavs didn't even make the playoffs. So I know I can have my fun. Not this year. But you know, when it comes to Monty, Monty's been a great head coach for the Suns. And I think that really he was that good, I would say a good coach to develop Devin Booker to the point where he's at now, just because I just remembered like the conversation that 
Monty had with the Suns when they were having their bubble run, when Devin Booker was essentially on that rise that where where Devin Booker's at now, he's essentially hitting his prime. You know, he I thought just he, he was a good coaching figure to be able to coach Devin Booker, who was still relatively young at the time, and be able to, and be able to foster that development to the point where he's at now. But I think when it comes to the Suns, how are you going to let go of a really successful coach just because it didn't work out this year, even after you traded for Kevin Durant? And as far as I see it, it's a bad look when it's, when Monty Williams has to take the fall for the team just not showing up. This was very similar to what we had talked about with the 76ers. Doc Rivers... It just got to the point in that game seven where he can't go out there and be able to knock down shots left and right. The players have to go out there and execute to be able to win a basketball game. And you could say the same thing about the Suns. Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, you could look at pretty much every player on that team in that game six against Denver. They didn't show up. They didn't execute at a high level. And I think it's unfair to place all of the blame solely on Monty Williams because of that. The players definitely deserve a pretty good size of the criticism of that game six performance. The fact that Monty's essentially getting fired over that, despite having a really good track record in Phoenix for the short amount of time that he's been there. I think, I think Phoenix really screwed this up and I don't know who they're going to bring in as a potential uh, backup to fill in their next head coaching position. But I don't think it's going to be a better option than what they had in Monty Williams. And I imagine that Monty's going to have a nice little uh, pool of suitors that are going to go after him this offseason, knowing that he's got a pretty good track record behind him. He's been to the finals. He's been to multiple uh, playoff appearances in the Western Conference, which is no easy feat, simply just because of how competitive the West is. So I imagine that Monty's going to get some pretty good head coaching looks over the next couple of weeks. It wouldn't surprise me probably within the next month or two that we hear that Monty Williams has been signed by a team to be their next head coach. But yeah, I, I really think that Phoenix, I think they overplayed their hand here. I think they got caught in the moment. And the fact that Monty Williams is their fall guy, I think is a really unfair move by them because I think Monty is really somebody that could lead the Suns to a future championship, but that will no longer be the case with him getting fired by Phoenix. So it'd be very interesting to see how Phoenix responds to this. But I think when we look back at this decision, I think it's going to be a mistake because I just don't know when it comes to a coach that's out there to bring into the fold that could put Phoenix in a better position to win than what Monty has done over the last couple of years. So we'll see how it works for Phoenix in the long run, but I think it's going to be a mistake. I couldn't agree more. I mean, you're talking about a guy that not brought your franchise back from the precipice of like irrelevancy because obviously your players also contribute to that, but they finally got a coach that was able to work with Devin Booker to the point where he was able to take his game to the next level. You go out there and you had the number one overall pick a couple years back and you take DeAndre Ayton at the center position, who quite frankly may be the actual catalyst to this entire issue. Then you go and you get Chris Paul, and you make some runs. You make some deep playoff runs. You go to the finals. You blow a 2-0 lead. You lose to the eventual champion, Milwaukee Bucks. 
You follow that up with the NBA's best record. You lose in the semifinals to the Dallas Mavericks in Game 7. Not only lose, you get blown out. And then this year, you eventually face the top-seeded Denver Nuggets. You tie the series up 2-2, and you go and you lose the next two. It's unfortunate because in situations like this in sports, there always has to be a scapegoat, right? Despite head coaches not being able to actually get onto the field, get onto the court, whatever sport it may be, on the ice, they're always the first people to get chopped up because you're not going to cut a franchise player like Kevin Durant, like Devin Booker. But in this case, I think they made the wrong decision for a multitude of reasons. Now what are you going to do when you have to restart from the beginning and create a whole new culture in Phoenix with a new head coach? Who's to say that that head coach ends up having a better relationship with his players than Monty Williams, or excuse me, than Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant said Monty Williams and Devin Booker were a big reason as to why he wanted to go to Phoenix. Now you just lost one of those pieces. DeAndre Ayton, I'm going to circle back to him now, didn't play in game six for a rib contusion. DeAndre Ayton has also been seen multiple times putting in no effort, not hustling, and not really giving a shit body language-wise on defense. Multiple negative games in the plus-minus category. Multiple games with single-digit performances. Got cooked by Nikola Jokic, which, let's be respectful, most centers, most, most players that guard him in general, get cooked because of his incredible skill set and talent. But when you're consistently getting abused and then just not getting back on defense, not caring, not chasing rebounds, not hustling, that narrative is going to carry through yeah, throughout your career. Young or not, inexperienced or not, I don't want to hear it. This is your third postseason run with the team. You have tasted being two games away from a championship. And yet, this is the performance that you go out there and put. This is the effort that you put. Then you don't play in game six. Again, I'm not going to sit here and critique an injury because if it's been documented, obviously that means it's real. We all know that sometimes things are exaggerated to get on the injury report, to to get a player out, or to give them a rest day. I'm not going to sit here and accuse him. Obviously, I don't know what it's like to have a rib contusion, so... It's neither here nor there. But DeAndre Ayton doesn't look like he wants to play here. He obviously, at the end of last season, said he wanted to play somewhere else. He got an offer from Indiana, and Phoenix matched it because they knew that he had the potential and the talent to be a good player. Him and Monty Williams had a multitude of issues. There were times where, where, where Devin Booker's talking to DeAndre Ayton, and he's not even listening. There's times that Monty Williams is talking to DeAndre Ayton to the point where it's been documented. Ayton stands up from the bench and goes to the opposite side because he doesn't want to listen to anybody. So you have lack of effort. You're not listening to your teammates or your coach. And you've publicly stated you don't want to be there and that you're unhappy. So Monty Williams gets the axe instead of DeAndre Ayton getting traded? You don't think that some of these games would have a better outcome if maybe you got him out of the game? I mean, for God's sakes, he was benched in game three or four for a player that no one's ever heard of. You're a former number one overall pick. You're a max contract player. And this is what you do? You throw a tantrum because you don't get your way? That's the problem with athletes nowadays. They know that they have the power. And an innocent coach and man like Monty Williams becomes a scapegoat. I know you have Kevin Durant. And I also know that you have Devin Booker. But with Chris Paul getting up there in age and more than likely being traded for the rumors... DeAndre Ayton now probably will stay because the friction was with mainly Monty Williams. But again, there are rumors that DeAndre is going to be traded, even though he said he loves Phoenix and wants to stay. Any PR team can write a better statement than that. But again, neither here nor there. It doesn't help when you made the trade for Kevin Durant as a franchise and you emptied your bench 
and and your key players, Mikel Bridges, Cam Johnson, future first round picks, and so on and so forth. You emptied the roster, you made the gamble, you got KD, and it looked like it may have turned out to be panning out in your direction when you won those two games in Phoenix. But Kevin Durant went cold, man. Devin Booker went cold, man. When the lights shine bright for Phoenix, that sun is, is beating them in the face, right? They, they can't get it done. Monty Williams, the great coach. Hundreds, hundreds, I feel like people have said that. Obviously, former teammates and players that have been underneath him, players that have, have played under him, have said he's an incredible person. So for Phoenix to do this just doesn't make sense to me. I agree with Kyle 100%. It shouldn't have been him. And in my opinion, you should have found a suitor for Aiton, kind of regroup the team, see what you get back, run it back one more time. If you let him go that time, then maybe. But now, you just got KD for less than 30 games in the year. Less than 20, actually, in the regular season because he got hurt. I didn't think that this was a smart decision by the franchise. I mean, only time will tell, right? That's what we always say on the podcast. That's what we always say in life. I just didn't think this was a good move, and he's going to be one of the most sought, sought out and most coveted coaches on the free agent market this NBA offseason. Yeah, I imagine if there are some teams that are looking to upgrade their head coaching position, he's going to be at the top of the list because he seems to do a really good job to be able to reach to players nowadays. And it could just be his overall personality that seems to really go along with the players pretty positively. I know that was definitely the case early on in Phoenix. I just remember that one situation in the bubble where he was able to kind of rally all those guys together. And, you know, he was that piece to really bring that unit together. He was the glue. And yeah. And I think overall, I just think that just his overall personality, what he brings to the table, not only as a coach, but just as a person, I think the, the players really rally behind that. And I think wherever he goes, I think if he's, if he's able to instill that same type of mentality, with wherever he goes, I think that he'll be able to do a pretty good job unless he goes to like some black hole NBA franchise where you're going to have to start from scratch and kind of work your way up. I, yeah, I don't know about that. Let's but, not do that. He has a good enough resume that he can go inserted into a team that is win-now mode. Ironically enough, I feel like if he went to Milwaukee, that'd be the ultimate karma because they have a great team as it is currently assembled. I'm even though, saying. like, even though we talked about Mike Budenholzer getting fired a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I looked at that as a mistake, and I think you know Giannis being hurt in that series definitely didn't help. But yep. I think if you're just looking at it from the perspective of yeah, like we were the number one seed and we got knocked out, it's like, but we didn't have our number one player for basically half of the series. Yeah, it's going to have a factor, and I think Milwaukee overplayed their hand in that one. And I don't know if it's necessary. I don't know if it's going to necessarily be a good situation for them in the long term. Now, if they hire Monty, I think that would still be, I think that would work out for them. But for Phoenix, I don't know who they're going to bring in that's going to be able that's to. It's going to be better than Monty Williams and what he was able to do in that short yeah, like, period of time. Like, is this going to be better if they bring in somebody else to get more value out of the team than what it's at right now? I'm not convinced of that. I think, if anything, Phoenix takes a step back just from. Just from a culture perspective, I think the culture is going to be significantly hindered because of this decision. But it's like you said, Kev, time will tell. Time will tell. So this is this is the perfect way to move on to our final two topics. 
So, Kyle, which one do you want to do? You want to take your boys, or do you want to talk about the Heat and the Celtics? Like, which which series do you want to go for? I'm going to start with the uh, Western Conference first. Let's uh, focus on the uh, Denver Nuggets and the Lakers series. All right. So, LeBron and AD do it again. They beat the defending champions in six games. Blowout fashion, by the way. LeBron damn near drops a triple-double, but we're not going to talk about that because it was such an embarrassing game by the Warriors. Bottom line, the Lakers are now facing the Denver Nuggets, the number one seed. Nikola Jokic and those boys have looked absolutely incredible. And LeBron James and Anthony Davis are the leaders and catalysts of this Lakers team. So, Kyle, our residential Laker fan, what are your thoughts on this upcoming series with the Lakers and Denver Nuggets? I think this is going to be a really good series. I think this series is essentially going to come down to a few factors. You know, I think whoever gets the majority of these factors on their side, they're going to move on to the NBA Finals to represent the Western Conference. I mean, first things first, we got to cover Nikola Jokic versus Anthony Davis. This is going to be the premier matchup in this series because when you look at both of these guys in particular, Nikola Jokic and Anthony Davis have respectively, respectively been the best players on their own teams. And Nikola Jokic in the playoffs so far has just been damn near unstoppable. And the way that he's able to affect Denver's offense, to get them in a position to where they, they could be able to succeed, he does it so nonchalantly. It looks like it's just a walk in the park half, half of the time. There are times where he's hitting like these little 5, 10-foot floaters, and it looks like he's barely putting any effort into it. And yet he just does this with what I would say is grace out there on the court and just does it at a high level. And we will see whether or not that that continues going into this series against the Lakers. You juxtapose that with what Anthony Davis is doing. Anthony Davis has been phenomenal on both sides of the court for the Lakers. Offensively, he's put up some huge performances in their first two playoff series wins so far. Uh, the first one being against the Grizzlies, the latest one being against the Warriors. And not only that, he's been just as great on the defensive side, getting multiple blocks per game, essentially just eating up rebounds left and right, where he's getting at least 15, sometimes even 20 plus rebounds a game. And it's having a huge impact with what the Lakers are doing. I think, you know, the premier matchup of this series is definitely going to be Anthony Davis versus Nikola Jokic. I think whoever gets the best of that one-on-one -on -one matchup, I think it will definitely give their team a boost in this series. And then essentially it's going to come down to what both teams are going to be able to do outside of their superstars. I mean, obviously, you know, when you look at Denver, you have Nikola Jokic, you have Jamal Murray. You know, those are going to be your two main guys that are going to lead you to the promised land. But you're going to have to look at guys like Bruce Brown, Aaron Gordon. Are these guys going to be able to step up and contribute at the way that they've been doing the first two series in which the Denver Nuggets have won? You juxtapose it with what the Lakers are doing. Obviously, Anthony Davis and LeBron James are going to lead the way. But they're going to have to get good, good contributions from guys like Austin Reeves, uh, Roy Hachimura, D'Angelo Russell. These players are going to be focal to what the Lakers could potentially do in this series. And with the way that the Lakers have played so far, if those role players step up to the magnitude that they, they've been displaying over the last couple of series, I think it will serve them well. And the same goes for Denver as well, simply just because Denver has looked pretty solid throughout these playoffs so far, and they look to continue that. I should also mention, you know, 
I know Kev has uh, has had some words to say about Michael Porter Jr. He's essentially going to be that third option behind Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Can he be able to step up in huge moments for Denver to be able to get them past L.A. in the series? It just depends on how effective L.A.'s defense is. L.A. has done a pretty good job defensively against the Grizzlies and the Warriors in their first two series. Can they be able to maintain it against the Nuggets? Time will tell. But when it comes to just my overall prediction for this series, I think more times than not, I'm going to actually side with the Nuggets in this one. You know, I'll put my bias to the side here just because I'm a Lakers fan. I think what the Lakers are going to struggle with in this series is out is the altitude in Denver. It may not happen in every single game, but there may be one game in particular where I think the altitude gets him, and it might hinder LeBron a little bit simply just because, you know, LeBron is getting up there in age. He's 38 years old, and he's put a bunch of minutes on his body. And there have been times where I've looked at LeBron in the playoffs, and you could you could definitely tell that he's conserving a little bit more energy in this playoff run compared to years past. And I think it's just because I think that age and attrition is starting to get to him, not to the point where he can't be effective. It's just he has to manage it a little bit more than he has in years past. And I think in this series, I think the altitude may play a factor where he may get a little bit more tired. There could even be the possibility of, of cramps. Who knows? It's just, that's going to be something that I'm going to focus on with LeBron in particular. It could hinder the Lakers a little bit. They have to adjust to that altitude uh, once they get out to Denver. But I think Denver, this is this is their year. I think with the way that Nikola Jokic has been playing, the way that Jamal Murray has been playing, they've getting good contributions from the role players. They are the younger team here. Granted, they don't have the playoff experience that LeBron and Anthony Davis have in regards to winning championships. But I think as long as they play good complimentary basketball like they have in their first two series and they continue it against the Lakers, I think they will probably wrap up the series in six games. There is a potential that this series could go seven. I, I'm not going to count out against it. It's just, I think Denver is primed for a finals run this year. I think the only way the Lakers get to the finals this year is they have to play outstanding defense against Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray to really stifle that Denver Nuggets offense and essentially make Denver's role players beat them. And as long as the Lakers could probably score around 100 to 105 points a game in the process, I think that's their formula for success. Kind of make these games a little bit more grimier, a little bit more gutsy in a way. But I think overall, this is going to be a great series. I'm looking forward to it since it starts on Tuesday. And at the end of the day, I just want a good series. If the series goes seven games, I'm all for it. But when it comes to my overall prediction of the series, I got the Nuggets winning the series in six games. Just my opinion on it. I mean, obviously, I'm usually not in full agreement, but I will kind of share the same sentiments to an extent with my partner. I think Denver wins this series. I don't necessarily know how long it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be a sweep. I don't think it's going to be a gentleman's sweep. So I think it's safe to say six, but if it did go seven, I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, I'd favor Denver, especially because not only the altitude, just overall home court advantage. If this has to go to game seven in Denver, altitude, Braun and AD got the mileage on them throughout most of these series. 
I think this is going to be a good one. Now, the matchup that everybody's going to talk about is obviously AD and Jokic. You know, can Jokic average a triple-double and dominate the defensive strength that Anthony Davis has shown us throughout this entire postseason? Is Anthony Davis going to be able to keep up with uh, Jokic's physicality? Uh, But I'm looking at the supporting cast of the Denver Nuggets. Not Jamal Murray in particular, but Michael Porter Jr., Catavius Caldwell-Pope, Aaron Gordon. How are those players going to be able to step up? Right? How are the bench players of the Denver Nuggets going to step up? Bruce Brown and and the remainder of their bench, because of course, in my mind, I'm, I'm I don't have the bench lineup in front of me, but I'm just looking at it from an overall perspective. You are going to need massive contributions from other players because they are going to hone in on getting the ball out of Nikola Jokic's hands. I mean, you have versatile defenders like AD Vanderbilt. They're going to be able to guard multiple positions, right? I just need Denver to hit open shots. If you're going to collapse in the post, double Jokic, deny him the ball, you're going to have to leave somebody open. Somebody, and I highly doubt that that one person is going to be um, Jamal Murray because we all know that Jamal Murray can go for 30, 40 points on any given night. Michael Porter Jr. has the potential and the capabilities. I know I kind of ragged on him a week or two ago, but... He needs to find a way to step up and get into a rhythm consistently because he's a walking mismatch. He's 6'10", 6'11", can shoot over the top of pretty much most of the Lakers, and he has a pretty solid jump shot when he gets it going. He can also finish at the rim, but I'm going to need Denver to play good defense as well. I think Aaron Gordon is going to be one of the X factors because we all kind of looked at him as somebody that when he got to Denver, it was kind of like, oh, he's just somebody that can dunk. He's developed a mid-range jump shot. He's found a way to get better on defense. He was kind of the one of the contributing factors that guarded KD, albeit KD still averaged over 28 points a game in the series. But he found a way to make it difficult, contest shots. Again, he's physical, he's tall, he's long. He can find a way, and I think that he's going to unfortunately draw the assignment of guarding LeBron James just because of the nature of the, the lineup that uh, the Lakers run. I don't know how that's going to go, but we'll kind of see how that goes over time. Overall, I got to, is Lonnie Walker going to be able to repeat the success that he did for the Lakers? I know I just flipped, but I'm just saying, obviously, I went on and on and on about Denver, so I'm I'm switching it over to LA. Is Lonnie Walker going to be able to contribute off the bench? Is Austin Reeves going to find a way to continue the stroke that he's had in games five and six of the Western semifinals? Is D'Angelo Russell going to get enough touches to where he's going to get into a rhythm throughout that series? Is Rui Hachimura going to come back down to earth, or should I say come back to reality of what he was putting on in the first round? Because the show that he put on the first round was absolutely incredible. He significantly cooled off in the second round. We like The Lakers need him to be consistent coming off the bench. Is Jared Vanderbilt going to be benched because of his offensive liabilities? We don't know. What, 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 what is you know, Darvin Ham going to be able to do? What, what, what lineup is he going to put out there in front of you? Is Dennis Schroeder going to be a viable factor here? There's so many overlooming questions. Anthony Davis's health is one. How they're going to guard Jokic overall is going to be a big one. And can L.A. keep up with the firepower of the Nuggets when they get it going? Because when Jokic gets people involved, man, the Nuggets are damn near unstoppable because if you're going to have to chase out, close in on Jokic, kick out to the corner, that defense is consistently going to be rotating. Someone's going to be open if if it's done right. And we all know the chemistry with the Denver Nuggets is absolutely impeccable. So again, for me, the X factors or those outlying factors for this series to, to be competitive... Can the Denver Nuggets supporting cast outside of Jokic and Jamal Murray be consistent? And can Anthony Davis and LeBron James find a way to carry this team to the NBA Finals? 
It's going to be a good series. They're going to be good matchups all across the board. I'm just looking forward to, like my partner said, something competitive. And I just want to see, can Braun actually do it? Is the script authentic? Is it real? Is it going to be blatantly obvious with fouls being called one way? Is it going to be entertaining? Is it going to be blowout for blowout? I have no idea. But the fact of the matter is, you got multiple Hall of Famers on the court at the same time. And I believe it is going to be one of the better Western Conference Finals matchups that we've seen in a little bit. Yeah, I think just really one more thing, if the Lakers are going to win this series, they're going to have to steal one of these road games in the first two games. Uh, They have been able to do it in their last two series. They did it against the Grizzlies, and they did it against the Warriors. Could they make it three series in a row where they steal one of those first road games? It's going to be big for them, because if they could be able to swing home court back in their favor, going back to L.A. for games three and four, I could set them up really nice. I think the only difference, though, is, is that when it comes to Denver, Denver's going to present them a much bigger challenge than what Golden State provided them and what the Grizzlies provided them. Because, you know, you look back at that Grizzly series, jaw was dinged up a little bit, so they were a little bit shaky throughout that series. Golden State, even though they were great at home this season, they were a terrible road team. And even Golden State, after they had lost that series, had said this was not a championship caliber team that really that what that Warriors team was had essentially hit their max as far as just how far that they could go with that team. But when it comes to Denver, I mean, Denver really has a chance to go to the finals here. And, you know, that's why I ended up picking them because well, when you look at it, they're one of the best teams in the NBA this year. And if not the best. Yeah. And they just utterly beat down the Suns on the road in game six to seal that series. Oh, beautiful. Don't be surprised if Denver could do that on the road going into L.A. The only thing I will say about the about the Lakers, though, about a positive point, is that they're defeated at home in the playoffs this year. Which is nuts. And they've been able to come up with some huge road wins. I think this comes down to if they can win one of those road games in those first two games, I think they got a shot in this series. But I think the longer that this series goes... And as long as the Lakers don't have like this massive lead in the series, like if they're up 3-1 in the series like they were in the Warriors series, and they're in a situation where they have to claw back into this series, I think by the end of it, I think Denver is going to be the team that's just honestly has more energy left. Because I think, like you said, Kev, I think just those minutes on LeBron, they're going to add up. I think AD is probably going to catch some dings here and there throughout the series. Especially guarding Jokic. Yeah, it's just... Jokic is going to be a tough guy to defend, and it's really going to push AD to his limits just because, Kev, Jokic might be the best player in the series across the board. It's either that or AD. You know, you could could say one or the other, but it's going to be very interesting to see how this series plays out. But I got... I got Denver in this one, but I think it's going to be a good series nonetheless. But with... But with that said, we are going to transition to our next conference final matchup, and that is going to be in the Eastern Conference, where we have the Miami Heat going up against the Boston Celtics. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. This is a rematch of last year's Eastern Conference finals appearance, and I believe they played each other in the bubble a couple years Mm -hmm. back. Was that the Eastern Conference finals as well? Yep. So this is the third time that they played each other in the last... Four, four years. Eastern, Eastern Conference Finals. It's kind of crazy. 
So, you know, essentially we've got the trilogy here. And, you know, when it comes to the Heat, the Heat have had kind of an improbable run to get here, claiming the last seed in the Eastern Conference, lost their first play-in tournament game, squeaked by in their second play-in tournament game just to get into the playoffs, have a huge upset win uh, against the Bucks in the first round of the playoffs. They beat the Knicks in the second round of the playoffs, and now they will find themselves against the Boston Celtics, where the Celtics just finished off a seven-game series against the Philadelphia 76ers. And that Game 7 performance from Jason Tatum was probably one of the most iconic playoff performances that we've seen in the last couple of years. So I would say that there's a little bit of momentum on Boston's side right now. But the Miami Heat did win their series a couple of days ago. So they will get some much-needed rest going into the series. I think that will probably serve Jimmy Butler pretty well since I would probably imagine he's still recovering uh, from that ankle roll that he suffered early in that series against the Knicks. But nonetheless, we get a really good matchup between the Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals. So Kev, to get this one to you, give me your overall thoughts on the Eastern Conference Finals with the Miami Heat going up against the Boston Celtics. Well, I mean, these two teams know each other very well. Kyle already said it, as did I. Third time in four years they faced each other. Jimmy Butler has been a part of each and every one of those matchups, and he just changes the culture when it comes to Miami basketball. Jason Tatum has emerged as an incredible star, uh, super, superstar. Jalen Brown as well, incredible two-way superstar. But the Miami Heat have something that a lot of teams don't have, and that's drive, desire, the passion for it. Despite losing Victor Oladipo, Tyler Hero, Jimmy getting hurt, they have found ways to win with the supporting cast that they have. Seven undrafted free agents are a part of this roster. A bunch of no-name players, respectfully, in terms of like being drafted, hype out of college, you know, free agency. They're just they're undrafted people. So there is no history behind them. They are finding ways to win with people like Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, Duncan Robinson. I mean, Caleb Martin, I'm just thinking overall, like some of these random players that are just going over my head. I mean, Bam Adebayo has stepped up the last couple of days. He was drafted. I'm just saying in terms of personnel that they still have going. Obviously, Jimmy Butler is the leader and the catalyst. Kyle Lowry was considered washed by me and a bunch of other people, and he has stepped up in the last couple of games in the playoffs. They have found ways to get things done despite being the final seed and the injuries and the question marks of whether or not that Jimmy Butler was going to bring a championship to Miami. And that possibility still stands that he can. The thing for me is Boston was clearly the better team in both series against Atlanta and Philly, but they found ways to make miscues. Now, whether that was Jason Tatum going cold from the field, whether that was the, the remainder of the Celtics not being able to help between Marcus Smart having a bad night, maybe Brogdon had a bad night, whatever the case may be, maybe defensive liabilities, mistakes on the turnover side. Boston should have been blowing these teams out. Like that Atlanta series should have been a sweep, if not a gentleman sweep at max. This Philly series, they blew Philly out in two out of the seven games, and it took James Harden going for 45 and 42 in close games for Philly to get those wins. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, Miami hasn't taken a night off. Every single game Miami has played in, wins and losses, has been close, outside of maybe one against Milwaukee, which was, I think, game two, and that was without Giannis, where they lost by 20 points or so. I'm trying to think, how in the hell 
Miami has been this competitive. And again, it comes back to mindset. They want it. They know they're an eighth seed and they have nothing to lose. They know that they're led by a bunch of random players. They understand that Jimmy Butler isn't the, at the level of a Kevin Durant, a Steph Curry, a LeBron James. But when he gets in the playoffs, playoff Jimmy is a whole nother person. He didn't have the greatest statistical second round, but the ankle injury limited him. He didn't play one of those games. And obviously, New York played incredible defense on Jimmy Butler to make other players beat them, in which the Heat did exactly that. So when you look at the matchup, yes, you have Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown that are going to guard Jimmy Butler. Yes, you have Robert Williams that's probably going to guard Bam Adebayo. But can Boston's role players find a way to compete with the role players of the Heat? Because again, these players don't have the contracts, the names, the endorsements, um, the incentives, all the things that the Celtics players have. Marcus Smart, former Defensive Player of the Year. Malcolm Brogdon, uh, Sixth Man of the Year. Obviously, you talk about uh, Jalen Brown, one of the better two-way players. And again, somebody who is now eligible for a Supermax contract. Jason Tatum, uh, first-team All-NBA, 51 points in Game 7. Yeah. Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin at the guard position. They're carving it up. Duncan Robinson at one point was deemed unplayable. And he's come in and he's provided valuable minutes and hit some big shots for the Heat. Kyle Larry was on the starting lineup and then moved over. Kevin Love, a washed-up 34-year-old man who, who, who was getting no burn in Cleveland, didn't want to play anymore, wanted to just absorb the contract, gets there and is, is, can be a double-double machine, spreads the floor. There are more, I think, like, I think Miami has more of an incentive. They have more reason to want to win this, to continue to prove people wrong. And obviously, Eric Spolcher is one of the best coaches in the NBA. So I expect this series to be highly competitive, especially because this is the third time they're playing each other in such a short span of years. Three and four. Remember that. Three, three series in four years. I wouldn't be surprised the series goes seven, to be honest. I really wouldn't because of how well they know each other, because of how dynamic both teams are. And because, quite frankly, I said this in the first series with Miami and, uh, with Miami and Milwaukee, there was no way that this offense was going to be able to keep up this pace. Miami was one of the worst offensive teams in the regular season. And they have found a way to shoot efficiently from the field, get to the free throw line, and play good defense. This has continued in the first two rounds, so I expect it to continue against Boston. If Jimmy Butler can get anywhere between 25, 28, almost 30 points a game, get people involved like he has, and the supporting cast continues to shoot lights out, I'm not asking for 20 points from random people. If Caleb gets you 10, if Struess gets you 12, if uh, Duncan gives you uh, 15 off the bench, that's a winning formula and a contributing piece all around. They just need to play good defense because we all know that Jason and Jalen can go for 30 a pop on any given night, but we also can see that Jason Tatum sometimes can kind of get a little ahead of himself and have a really bad night. So I really can't make a definitive decision as to who will win, but when it comes to who I want to see win, I want to see Miami, man. I love Jimmy Butler. I keep saying it every single year. Jimmy is just a different kind of person. He's just an energizer bunny, a person that will go to war with you, fight with you, and get in your face and not care who you are. That energy is contagious. That is the type of energy you want in a locker room, in a playoff atmosphere. That's the guy you want to go to war with. 
And in Boston, you have that with a great group of veterans. But again, once one of them has kind of like an off night and the other one has to carry the show, and in recent memory, at least in this postseason, outside of Jason's uh, 51-point game, Jalen has had to carry a lot of the load because there are nights when Jason Tatum just is completely off or is just not in rhythm. So if Boston has one of those off nights, can Miami capitalize? If Jason and Jalen go off together, can Miami find a way to keep up? I don't know. But I'm going to go with the Miami Heat in seven. I think that they're a team that get, can, uh, can rally behind a person like Jimmy. I think they're, someone, they're, they're a team that has bought into the message that Spolstra has delivered. I think the culture in Miami has completely shifted since Jimmy has got there. And uh, I think that we are going to see the eighth seed beat the two seed. And I think that Miami is going to advance to the finals this year. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. When you said that you were really wanting the Heat to win this series, I had to do something but just smile. Just because like, I could totally understand uh, where that sentiment comes from. And uh, it's no doubt in my mind that Miami is going to be the underdog in this series. Oh, yeah. But I still think that they can really make this a good series. Um, it's like what I said in the uh, Western Conference preview. You know, to me, I got the Nuggets winning that series in six. But honestly, I just want a good competitive series. That's what everybody wants. And I think that the Heat could really give the Celtics a run for their money in this series. But I am going to go against you on this one. I am going to pick the Celtics in this one. I still see the series potentially going six games. Could it go seven? Maybe so. I, I think it's going to depend on a few factors, though. One of the things that I'm going to really pay attention to when it comes to Miami is how effective is Jimmy going to be? Because, you know, he was lights out against Milwaukee in that first series. And then he suffers that ankle roll in the first game of that New York Knicks series. And you could tell he was definitely limited in that series. And I would say the next best performance that they got from him uh, was in the final game of that series where the Heat were able to close that series out in six games to get to this point of where they're at now. So this series doesn't start until Wednesday. There's going to be a good chance that Jimmy's going to get some more time to be able to recover from that ankle injury, get some rehab, um, allow the trainers to be able to maximize the amount of time that he could use that to rehab that ankle injury. And I think as as long as he's around 90 Maybe 95% is pushing it, but I think if they get Jimmy to about 90% of where he's at compared to where he was before he suffered that ankle injury, I think that Jimmy has a good chance to pop off for some 30, maybe even some 35-point performances against the Celtics. It's not going to be easy knowing what Boston can do defensively, but I still think that if he can get into a rhythm, even if Boston's playing good defense against him, those mid-range jumpers, once they start falling down from Jimmy, that could serve him well and serve Miami well uh, going into this series. I think another part for Miami that you have to look at is I think that Miami actually has the coaching advantage over Boston in this series just because Eric Spolster has been to multiple NBA finals. And despite the fact that the Heat have not had Tyler Hero since the first round of the playoffs, they deal with Jimmy Butler dealing with a ankle injury early in the series against the Knicks. And yet, Eric Spolster is able to put the right guys in the right positions at the proper times and be able to overcome the obstacles that 
have been placed in front of Miami just from an injury aspect perspective and rise to the occasion to get to this point of where they are in the Eastern Conference Finals. That is really a credit to Eric Spolstra and the coaching staff being able to know the situation at hand, be able to adjust, and still succeed. And they've done a fantastic job in that regard. You compare that to the Celtics in Joe Missoula. This is Missoula's first year as a head coach in the NBA. And I will say that he's done a fantastic job in getting the Celtics back to the Eastern Conference Finals. And I will say the one thing that I think Missoula may have over Eric Spolstra is just that mindset, the intensity that he brings to the team. Because there were plenty of points throughout the series against the 76ers where we got to see what Missoula's coaching style was like, whether it was at the post-game podium, whether it was during the game, during a timeout. He's very intense, and he's not afraid to be able to show some emotions, whether it's on the court or even post-game at the podium. And I think that's one thing that could really serve Boston well, is even though that Missoula has some playoff inexperience as a head coach, I think he can make it up just for the overall intensity that he brings with his overall mentality. He's a very intense coach, and I think it really does put Boston into a situation where they don't take it for granted when it comes to the opportunity that they have presented against them. And then when it comes down to the player matchups, I think overall, I think Boston is more well-equipped to get to the NBA Finals than Miami at this point, just because Miami is dinged up. Uh, Boston is not as injury-prone compared to Miami throughout these playoffs so far. Now, obviously, things can change. Things happen. Guys suffer injuries uh, in these playoff series, and you know Boston could have the injury bug show up at the worst time here and really affect them in this series. But it just seems to me that Boston is the healthier team. Even though the Boston had the longer series, I think they, they could be able to overcome that despite playing a full seven games against the 76ers. I think they can round into form relatively quickly, win some of these playoff games at home, and it's going to come down to whether or not they can go on the road and beat the Heat in Miami. I think if they could do that early on in the series, I think it will serve them well, but it's going to be a dogfight in the series just because Miami, they have been here before. They've only been three years removed from going to the NBA Finals, and you know, granted, the teams have looked a little bit different compared to when these teams met in 2020 in the Eastern Conference Finals. There's still some carryover from the teams last year in the Eastern Conference Finals. But when it comes to this matchup, it's going to come down to who's going to hit their shots. And, you know, can Boston effectively knock down three-point shots that they were able to in that Game 7 against the 76ers when they go up against the Heat? Can the Heat be able to get these top-tier performances from their role players if Jimmy is not going bonkers scoring 35, 40 points a game. You know, that means guys like Kyle Lowry, Max Struess, uh, Bam Adebayo, Duncan Robinson. These guys have been playing relatively well so far, but going up against a really good defense in Boston that could prove to be a challenge uh, when they go against each other when this series gets kicked off. But really just to round this out, you know, I, I want a good competitive series. That's what every NBA fan wants. That's what I want as well. And I think when it's all said and done, I just have more faith that the Celtics will be able to get over the hump 
and and fight against a really tough Miami Heat team. This might be one of those number eight seeds that is, it really kind of throws a paradox out there simply just because you know, typically we don't see number eight seeds make it all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals. Yet the, the Heat have found a way to be able to get to this point and they've made the most of their opportunities and I don't think that they're going to let it go uh, knowing that an NBA Finals trip is on the line here. So overall, going to be a good series. It's going to come down to the superstars making their place, the role players making their place. I think more times than not, I think the Celtics are going to be the ones making the plays at the proper times to be able to get over the hump and eventually get to the NBA Finals. So I got the Celtics winning this series in six games, but I will leave the door open for the possibility of the Celtics winning this series in seven as well. But it's going to be a great series no matter how it plays out. This is just the unfortunate part of the playoffs, right? Where we're, we were spoiled for the last four weeks or so where there was a game like every single day, multiple games a day, and now we kind of got to do it spread out where it's got to wait till Tuesday, then the next game's Wednesday, then you got to rest it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, we understand that this is how it works. It just, it sucks as a sports fan who enjoys watching all of those games to now it be dwindled down to two. And then mm-hmm. eventually when the finals come next month, it's going to be one game every few days. So, yep. At the end of the day, we we like competitive sports. We like competitive basketball since this has been all NBA for the last few weeks. But Kyle and I are both super excited. Obviously, his team is invested. He's there just like I was last year when the Mavericks had the Western Conference Finals. So happy to see his team. Happy for my dad and my brother and to you know my Laker friends that have been Laker fans since before high school. So like real ones. Uh, but overall, man, the playoffs have been great. No disappointments. There have been some blowout games here and there, but again, you're never going to get a close game, game winner, or even an overtime game every single game you watch. So mm-hmm. I can't complain. And uh, I'm just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. But Kyle, that is uh, that's everything we have for today. Did you have anything that you were thinking of last minute? No, I, I got nothing. We pretty much hit the gamut here. Um, oh, honestly, we, we could just wrap it up here. I, I say what I always do at the end of these episodes. Uh, just appreciate you guys tuning in, uh, whether it was on YouTube, whether it was on our social media accounts like uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We definitely appreciate the support. Um, Kev, you, uh, you got some uh, plans la- later this week, so I think it's just going to be me uh, for the next episode later this week, as long as I have that correct. Am I right? Yeah, uh, I'm going away with uh isabel and her family got to take care of some family stuff up there and uh i leave technically wednesday early morning driving over to fort lauderdale flying but uh we come back sunday evening so depending on the time and obviously like you know i gotta go to her house and go get the dog and all that stuff so i may be available for sunday night it just all depends on the time i land and stuff so um we'll, we'll play it by ear we always find a way to do it and uh as always we appreciate the support wherever we can get it. Um, again, to all the mothers, I know it's going to be Monday by the time everybody hears us, but happy Mother's Day, happy belated Mother's Day to everybody out there. We appreciate you guys, and without you, we wouldn't be the uh, the young, respectable men we are today, right? Kyle and I are very, very thankful for our moms. Exactly, and you know, once again, I, I just have to say happy Mother's Day to my mom. Love her to the end of time, so I'm just glad that... Uh, I was able to spend some time with her and my family before uh, before the end of the day. That's all that matters, right? 
Yes, sir. Got to make the little moments count. But that's everything for us, guys. We will see you guys later throughout the week. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Take it easy, you guys. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today.